everyone and welcome to another Scots Way podcast and you have just heard Home Sweet Home by Elspace and uh, I'm joined by Elspace right now uh, with Lily Hyam. Hello Lily. Hello. Uh, Gordon Johnson. Gordon. Hello. And Dixon Telfer. Hello Dixon. Hello. And thanks for coming along guys. Um, now I'm always wary of this first question because most musicians... Um, don't like to answer it, but I think you guys might be different. So I'm going to say, describe your music. Oh man, well, what got me thinking about this actually was looking over some of the um, reviews, my own and other people's, and sometimes it feels like it's just it's just words, random words put beside <laughs> each other. Yeah. You know, like yeah, it's dream, noise, like pop, and it's like one of those. You know, like boy used to just put random words together and see if yeah. he could come up with a lyric. Absolutely. And I'm wary of that when doing reviews that you just kind of think, oh, what does it sound like? And if you find it difficult, you just kind of use other terms and put them together. Mm-hmm. But so I just wondered what you guys thought about how even mm-hmm. how you're described by folk like myself, I suppose. I think we also put the words together in that way. Uh, we started saying utopian pop. Yeah, because it kind of. We used to call ourselves dream pop, and then I listened to dream pop and realised that we are absolutely not that. Uh, and we're not really noise pop because it's not as jaggy. Yeah, it's as, not noisy. It's, it's not noisy enough. Exactly. Noise so, pop. Yeah. And then we touch on things like trip hop quite a lot as well, but we're not that laid back. So it's really. Are we even is, pop? I don't, I don't think it's, I call it pop because the songs are short. You know, I don't, mm. it might not be. No, hooky. So yeah. That makes yeah. It I, think, I mean, I hate this term, but something like art pop is probably verging on... Pretentious. It is, it's <laughs> massively pretentious, but it's, It might be the most accurate term, but no one would... Yeah. No, I would, never, I would never use it, but um, it's like, that's how people would describe uh, Radiohead's kind of later career, yeah. which is, I think, quite close to what we sound like. But I, I wouldn't know how to categorise that either. So yeah. it's, it's really difficult. I guess the reason for asking the question is, one, does it matter? Mm. And also, um, what do you often kind of read reviews of your stuff and think, well, I okay, you might even say you like it. I don't recognise your definition of what we do. <laughs> mm. Yeah, there definitely have been some times like that. Um, people have compared us to bands that I just would not have imagined. Some of them I haven't heard of, which is quite nice, because it means then you can listen to them and maybe find something you like. Yeah, I have to, I mean, I've done that with other bands where I've said, this sounds like, say for instance, Echo and the Bunnymen, and the band will get back to me and say, I've never heard of them, and mm-hmm. go and away and say, oh, actually, yeah, we do, because yeah. it's come through various, mm-hmm. they've listened to bands who were then influenced by exactly, them. Exactly, yeah. That way. I, th- I think um, in this sort of day and age and in the climate, and it is actually quite important to be able to define your music quite clearly, because... If you're vying for attention and if you're vying for PR opportunities and marketing and stuff, you need a short, snappy way of describing yourself. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you can't have this big, long, rambling uh, diatribe. So Just have uh, an essay ready for yeah, everyone exactly. to hand out. Yeah, I, uh, well, I hope to talk your audience. Exactly. Yeah. I've um, taken to saying, because people have recommended that I don't say we sound like such and such a band, right. but I've been saying That's something on the lines of we sound a bit like Goldfrap covering Radiohead if they're going through a bit of a Portis heady sort of phase and I think that kind of sums up a wee bit but then yeah. it's not there's so much missing from that maybe uh, it's a good thing though I think yeah not, we're, we're exactly this or we're exactly that I think it is a good thing I think that tends to be the more interesting bands to listen to the mm-hmm. ones that you can't just you know immediately put them into a bracket and say well you know that, yeah. that's metal that's fine exactly. you know I'd be devastated if somebody listened to us and said oh that's definitely Exactly, exactly that. Yeah, that's, <coughs> from that exact yeah, audience. That's indie yeah. pop, you know, oh, well, okay. <laughs> I think a lot of it's got to do with the vocals, though. Mm-hmm. You know, because sometimes the songs can be heavily layered and quite noisy, and then you've got Lily's voice coming through. Yeah. It's like peace in a noisy place. Mm-hmm. It's, it just adds it's that, a that extra. Mm-hmm. A solitary um, lighthouse on a rocky coast. So, yeah, or that. I'm getting very poetic. As the singer, uh, other times when people think they've heard what, how you sound and make assumptions that's how the band are going to sound or do you know what I mean by that you know they have uh, they compare you to other female singers and say mm. is that this person sounds like ABC and actually you think well no I don't and the band doesn't sound like that either I think maybe that does happen sometimes because uh, when the vocals are kind of at the forefront of the music it's the first thing that they might hook onto and try to compare and then if they first compare the vocals to other vocalists that are with other instrumentation that doesn't actually match, they might give a, um, 
they're kind of weak comparison mm. if they're focusing on the style of female vocals because yeah. the one that they compare it to doesn't interact with the music around it in the same kind of way. Um, I think it happened quite a lot for a lot of bands. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Because I, I remember reading uh, years ago, uh, people would lump uh, Frightened Rabbit and Twilight Sad together because they both sang a Scottish accent. Mm-hmm. Couldn't get two more diff- different yes, bands. Yeah, I agree. But it, that became a genre, yeah. you know, that uh, kind of Scottish music indie scene. I think it happens to us. Yeah, yeah. People hear Lily's voice, a kind of ethereal thing, like, oh, ethereal vocals, dream pop, drop done. Yeah. Without any consideration for what's actually underneath. So I think the whole female vocals has almost become a genre in itself, mm. which is ridiculous. I guess that's the sort of thing I was thinking about. Mm. And the, the um, Frightened Rabbit Twilight Sands a very interesting one because that seemed to, because of their success, then a lot of bands that came after when people mm. said, oh, they sound like Frightened Rabbit and Twilight Sands. And you think, yeah. well, they don't really sound like yeah, each other. Like, how do they sound yeah, like? Yeah, how can they sound like that? Yeah, yeah it's madness. Um, I think it was um, part of a discussion I saw on Twitter recently as well about female fronted becoming a, like a genre mm. and how yeah. um, the women that are discussing it on Twitter don't want that to be a genre because they don't want the female be, to yeah. be what is the key thing about no, it. No, no, absolutely. It's, the music is the most important thing mm-hmm. and they just happen to be female. And yeah, exactly, yeah, of course. Um, and maybe it's discussed more in the context of trying to balance the gender of things and then that term comes out as a, a tool to balance, you know, um, like we need a, a female fronted band for the balance of this, so it might be used in those kind of ways, but in other ways, uh, mm. yeah, it's like a qualifier to being a musician. It's not you're just a musician, you're a female musician, yes, mm-hmm. um, whereas male musician is the default, mm. yeah, and that happens. I mean, that happens across the arts, you know, you know, yeah. you're not just a writer, a female writer, or whatever, that mm. kind of thing, but I think you are also right about the voice being at the forefront. Which you know, so you say, well, they're singing in Scottish, so it's the same sound, or they're, you know, rapping in Welsh, so it's the same. Yeah, I mean, because it did happen when mm-hmm. Super Furries and other bands were going to play, and yeah. the folk lumped them all together. But actually, their music was really different. Mm-hmm, definitely. And when I do write the vocal lines, I always try and make it fit tightly with the, the instrumentation. Mm-hmm. It's not like just something uh, like a pop song that you stick on top of the instrumentation, and that's uh, less important in a way. I've tried to make the vocal melody um, part of like just another instrument among all the others yeah. uh, and that they fit together and complement each other it's an ensemble um, piece mm-hmm. I think we've definitely been putting some lineups just because we are quote unquote female fronted you know there's been, there have been some lineups where it's been like all men and Lily's the only woman mm-hmm. on the lineup and we didn't suit the other bands you know we had nothing in common like we did yeah. a gig in Opium Years ago, there was a really heavy kind of psychedelic post rock band and then a kind of screamo band, and we were right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Like, we do not belong here <laughs> at all. It's just because the songs like Southern Reach and that, that are big and noisy. Exactly. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, we'll love a bit of that. Yeah. Oh, you've got a girl as well. I exactly. Oh, box tick. <laughs> it's hard in those situations because you, you don't want to be there just because of that, but at the same time, those music organisers are making an effort to. Exactly. We've got a few fans out there as well. Things we can't. Yeah, you're right. I wouldn't chastise somebody for one for making an effort to have more women on lineups. I think it's really important. Yeah, they're trying to break the cycle. Yeah, I think the problem is that there's so many, like really, really talented women in the Scottish music scene that they are all lumped together. So I see lineups where you've got somebody like Lou McLean, that singer songwriter, on the same lineup as mm, I don't know. Uh, us, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just really strange. It's mm-hmm. quite odd. It, it doesn't necessarily fit, but I think we are lumped together a wee bit. But sometimes those kind of lineups where there isn't a through line can be interesting in themselves because, mm-hmm. as you say, people say, "Well, I'm here to hear uh, this band," and actually, oh, I, I would never normally have listened to that band. That yeah. was, that's mm-hmm. quite good. That's what I think was quite good about um, the Seven Song Clubs that Warren McIntyre puts on at the John because he just puts on three bands that he likes and thinks people might, you know, yeah, come to yeah. do. He doesn't kind of curate them by going, well, they would fit with them or they would fit with them. And yeah. I think that could be quite nice. I do like those kind of lineups as well. And I think it's part of the way, I, part of the reason I thought Transmit was a bit disappointing is that it was quite bland in its lineup. A lot of it was quite similar. Yeah. Whereas other festivals have more like genre mixing, like you can see, yeah, you can see like a pop artist and then there'll be a hip hop artist and then there'll be some jazz. And 
Um, Whereas transfer, it's kind of like watching beige paint dry on a magnolia wall. It's just so dull. <laughs> there's only so many guitar bands with like four straight white guys singing about shagging and drinking that you can really listen to. They've got some hip-hop on the Friday. That's probably the most yeah, interesting day. That is the most interesting mm-hmm. Jerry, uh, Jerry Cinnamon on right before Stormzy. Brilliant. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what it was. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's going to be a, a, a bit party. Of yeah. <laughs> no, that, that Glasgow's going to be absolutely jumping that night. Uh, well, you mentioned kind of um, a little bit about how you write the songs, and I'm interested in that. Um, so, yeah, how do you, how did the songwriting process work for you guys? Uh, a lot of wine, wine really helps. Uh, we we've got different approaches, uh, and I think you can tell in the songs. It usually goes one of two ways. Lily will write a sort of a guitar based song like purely around vocals like you can't start with vocals yeah stuff. like it's more melody driven the guitar yeah. is just to like support the the idea of the song mm. and um can be quite folky sometimes as well just yeah. because of other influences i've had and then it gets yeah to you. then i i take it and uh kind of pick it apart and then rebuild it um with synths and beats and everything or i do the synths and beats first and then we work on it together and we we tend to do it quite remotely. Uh, we don't really just sit in a room together and mm. batter out songs just because of the way that we, the, the way that we sound, that would be impossible. And you're also, I mean, almost the ultimate central belt band because you've got Edinburgh, yeah, right. Falkirk, and Glasgow yep. right, stretching along. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we're just going to take that little quote from you saying "ultimate central belt band." Yeah. Yeah. That could be a new genre. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, it, ultimate central belt. <laughs> I wonder in, in the days where you can send sound files so easily and yeah. things like that. Is that a part of it oh, as well? Absolutely. We wouldn't. It works. Yeah, we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for. If we tried to all write together, mm. we get nothing done because it would take so long. Um, and I, I write music constantly anyway. Uh, so it tends to be, it always ends up being a collaborative effort and always changes once we get into the studio and listen to it properly or when we play it live, it changes quite a lot as well. But initially it's usually... Yeah, there's, uh, there's some really nice moments. So like Gordon sends me about 600 songs a week by email. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'll... I'll just noodle about it. Gordon is, is nodding going, <laughs> yeah, yep, that's yeah. about that's a quiet week. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I just noodle about in the bass, um, and then Lily will send a, a version that she's done in her house mm-hmm. with a, a mic that's all kind of rough and ready. Mm-hmm. And then you just sort of hear it coming together, and then there's sometimes really nice moments. It doesn't always work out, but sometimes really nice moments. In a rehearsal room, we get together, so we'll try the new song. And then you could just hear it gelling. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, great, aye. So we did this in three separate parts of Scotland and we've come together and it's working. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Sometimes it doesn't work or sometimes there's, like, there's an element of a song that doesn't quite work that we then need to revisit mm-hmm. and out. But, but it seems to work okay as, yeah. as a process. And I think the different yeah. ways we do it as well, we're starting with different people putting down the first foundations of the song, forces us to write different songs as well. If I just wrote uh, songs on a guitar and with that, for all of the songs, uh, I think um, everything would sound very different and there would be less variety in the mm. vocals, I think, whereas when you send me um, an arranged synth piece or piano piece, mm. it forces me to write in a different way because yeah. I have to take into account the melodies you've got, make sure the melody's complementary, um, play around the ri- with the rhythm. Um, it, yeah, it, forces, it challenges us and forces us to do something different actually makes it more creative. Yeah. Restriction sure. makes you more creative. Yeah. yeah. Strangely. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, if it was just me writing the kind of stuff I write, there'd be no consideration for melody because I, I don't have a great ear for melody. Um, I don't know how Lily just pulls these things yeah, out of thin air. It's amazing. Um, sometimes it's fast, sometimes it takes revisiting mm-hmm. it over and over again. Yeah. Like, There's when yeah. I, I don't ever think about that sort of stuff when I'm writing music. Like, We've got a couple of instrumentals called uh, Propaganda and Southern Reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the songs, but they'd be impossible to sing over because it's just ear-splitting noise for the most part. And if it was all like that, first of all, we'd be a very different band. And it would be quite boring, I think. Whereas we've, we strike a good balance between the kind of noisy, densely layered stuff and Lily's much more kind of melody-driven pop, you know, sentimentalities. Absolutely not the word I wanted there. 
Sensibilities. Sensibilities. Pop sentimentalities is a different genre yeah, altogether. Right, right. So how did uh, how did the band come together? I mean, it's an obvious question, but it seems an important one when you're all bringing different things to it. Um, right, go for the shoe story. Go yeah, uh, Lily and I met back in 2014 when we worked for the same uh, youth charity, and one uh, it was like proper poverty wages. You know, we were desperately poor. And one day I snuck around uh, to a little back office place to glue my shoes back together because they were falling apart, only to find Lily doing exactly the same thing. And we bonded over that, uh, that we couldn't afford like basic glue. necessities. <laughs> yeah, like the glue. So, um, and we, I think that was like the first time we really spoke properly and then from then we realised we have similar interests in like the kind of books we read and the kind of music we listen to, so we did a lot of chat about speculative fiction and then, yeah. yeah. Yeah, at the time I ran a thing called The Grind, which mm-hmm. was a journal of the arts and uh, it was all a bit mad, but I met Dixon through that um, because we had a mutual friend, uh, Craig, who wanted to be on Dixon's book launch at the time, so we did it as a, a joint thing with The Grind, so we met... Which was also 2014, just a bit later. Yeah, it was actually, so, um, year, yeah. Yeah, so we did the book launch and then it was... That's, that's when we were all in the same room for the first time because mm-hmm. Lily was doing yeah. the doing the sound mm-hmm. that yeah, day because the book launch involved a bit of music and yeah. I got I had a, a a lapel mic yeah. rather than a mm-hmm. stand mic because it was being quite animated telling yeah. stories. <laughs> it was yeah. an interesting one to do the sound for because it was mostly people speaking and then it was Adam Stafford doing all his oh, wow. interesting noises. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was also when we had the guy from Mouse Eat Mouse play. Uh, there were like a a really odd kind of Scottish folk hip hop kind mm-hmm. of thing. They're absolutely brilliant, and the guy is mad as a box of frogs. Uh, I remember I put on a gig with him once, and he has a song where it's just thirty seconds of screaming. And I said, "You're not going to play that, are you?" He goes, no, 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 don't do that live. Cue thirty seconds of screaming. I've never seen an audience turn out as quick as he did. But um, basically, after after that first initial night, we um. Uh, we all stayed in touch, you know, Lily and I worked together, Dixon and I worked with uh, stuff on the grind. And then when Lily and I started to do music, um, Dixon caught wind of it and asked if we wanted some bass. I you know, just said, uh, play a bit of bass if you want. Yeah. And, and, uh, worked that well. Yeah, because yeah, I first uh, knew you as a writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, had you always done music though? You know, yeah, was... over the years, various different bands and projects I'd always been interested in music um, but you know sometimes you try something for a while and people move on so yeah, sure. we went, went to live somewhere else or they had children and so bands would start to of course. stop happening as regularly uh, so I didn't have anything going on at the time I don't think mm. so I just said it kind of off the cuff mm-hmm. so I'll play a bit of bass if you're looking for some bottom end in your, in your songs and then I sent some old material um, to Gordon just to let me hear the kind of stuff that I could do. And he's like, oh, we'll try a track. And we did Blue Flowers yeah. and Brother Mars. Yeah. Those were the two. And then that was it. Yeah, so that was, that, was, that was the start of it, yeah. Yeah, that was January 2017. Um, Lily and I recorded a little bit before then, just in my living room. Um, yeah, so it was January 2017. And then I didn't really know what was going to come out, but we sent it around a couple of places. In fact, you were one of the first people to review it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Soul Zero um, EP. Then we were offered a gig at King Tut's a, a week after that, I think. I thought, crap, we need a band. You know, we actually need to <laughs> figure this out. And, um, it, that was mightily stressful. Um, but yeah. you know, at the time, you know, I'd, I'd grown up going to gigs in King Tut's and uh, I've always wanted to play there, so I wasn't going to pass it up easily. Sure. So we drafted in another person that we worked with, um, Maggie, who helped out with Synth for a while. Uh, then Maura helped mm-hmm. out, um, and now Stephen. Mm-hmm. So it's, we've got like a revolving door of fourth members, but um, so but like Spinal Tap have drummers. You've yeah, got keyboard exactly, players. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, <laughs> they all bring something different as well. They're very talented yeah. and bring yeah. a different sound. Yeah, Absolutely. ideally we could have all of them playing at once and have a massive band. That would be lovely. I don't think we've ever been cooler than Morrow's in the band though. Come back, so Morrow. I would spend ages trying to figure out how to not look like a shambles, and then Morrow would just rock up effortlessly, fantastic. Really depressing. Uh, it just looks like a pile of crap. <laughs> but yet, as you mentioned briefly, you've got Stephen Solo yes. playing with you at the moment. And what does he bring to the, the band? 
great chat and also memes like you've never seen. <laughs> His meme chat is absolutely stellar. I love it. It makes me feel less old as well. <laughs> it's uh, it quite an age gap between Mora and I. Although I got in great with that, I have to yeah, say. Yeah. But it, was, it was like the, the age gap wasn't really a, yeah. as big as it was. But uh, So Stephen's more my kind of age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Stephen brings a, a tremendous amount to the band. A lot of... Knows his stuff, eh? Yeah, exactly. A lot of music industry knowledge, a lot of just sheer musical knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he kind of pushes us and encourages us to to do things really um, he's absolutely brilliant um, and he brings new like synth lines that we hadn't had before and uh, knows how to pick out synth sounds very well which seems yeah. like not a very important thing but it can totally change the tone of a song oh, I can imagine. Um, so just knowing kind of what sound would fit the theme is really important mm-hmm. and he does yeah. that well. and he taught Gordon that he was maybe unintentionally using unresolved chords oh yeah yeah my lack of musical knowledge is somewhat uh, fabled. I, I know zero musical Is this in the blog, though? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, right? yeah, so Stephen said, oh, are you sure it's this chord? You know, it's unresolved. It's what? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, oh, we, that's a shame. Yeah. Uh, it's like, not a bag. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it's always quite fun. When we were trying to learn the songs initially to play live, I remember Maggie... She was a, a classically trained pianist, and mm-hmm. she'd say, what chord she is this? She still is. Yeah, well, I don't know, maybe she rescinded it. But um, she said, what chord is this? I went, oh, I don't know. She went, well, what notes is it? These ones. <laughs> and I just point at them and she went, oh, that's a D suspended whatever. I went, that is fascinating. I did not know that, thank you. And there was another song that we couldn't play live because I didn't know how I wrote it. Uh, I, just, I just made all these sounds. It sounded nice that's great, but I can't recreate it live because I simply do not know what the chords are. Right. And I don't know... It's like we have a, a wee song called Recycle, which is a lovely little... It's like a skit almost. No idea how to play it. Don't know what the chords are, don't know how to figure it out. Yeah, because we were going to do it live one time and realised yep. we can't. We spend an awful lot of time in the studio with people shouting at me saying, why have you done this? <laughs> you know, why, why is all this? Yeah. I, I just start sobbing, you know, I don't know. It just is the way it is. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes um, not knowing music theory can make you write in a different way. Yeah, very much so. Um, but that yeah, yeah. Uh, some things though that I've learned more recently, I think, are quite helpful. So I used to do this thing where I'd write uh, a melody line and chord sequence where it comes in a cycle, so that if you imagine there are four sections, the first chord would be the same as the fourth chord, mm-hmm. which means then the fourth chord and the first chord of the next section mm-hmm. are the same. And that sometimes became a bit difficult when arranging the songs. And also I think sometimes it loses the impact when you come to a new phase because instead of changing into a new chord that can give an impact, it's just a continuation of the chord. And I was reading some music theory recently about cadence and Mm. particular chords uh, that are a particular interval from the first chord that set up the next phrase more effectively mm-hmm. and now I've read about that I think I'm going to try and do that a mm. bit more yeah, but and the theory's alright isn't it yeah, to, yeah, to inform yeah. or inspire but it's, yes, it's, it's, it's all based on theory and it gets a bit restricted mm. most of the theory I've learned is from when people have described our music using a certain word and I'm not sure if it's an insult or not so I have to google it it's like somebody said one of our songs was full of contrapuntal melodies like you son of a bitch what yeah, how dare you <laughs> did you call yeah, me that yeah sorry yeah. I'll contra your puntal you know, insult then <laughs> I, I looked into it and it's actually quite pleasant so deleted that angry yeah. email so, uh, <laughs> but yeah I think we're, we're definitely learning as we go along I've right. got little bits of theory and you can read little bits here and there mm. but I, I don't know I quite like just doing stuff more organically oh, yeah. it's such a cliche isn't it I, but I think it's true I, mean, I, I don't want to learn yeah. I don't really want to learn how I do what I do because I think it would change what I do I'm, I'm you know quite happy skills I don't know any scales. <laughs> I, I know that if you use all white keys, it might be C, but that's basically it. I am. Um, I wouldn't want to learn though. I think it will happen naturally, but for the time being, I'm actively not learning what I'm doing. I think for the contrapuntal thing, I think that came about as a result of the way we write songs. You'd send me a piece, and I'd start making up a melody before I've really analysed the structure of it. So then my melodies would just run over different phrases differently, um, and I did it without thinking about it. Whereas I think if I went for contrapuntal, mm-hmm. I always worry I'm saying that wrong, um, it might sound different. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that um, my listeners will know what contrapuntal means, but for me, what yeah, is yeah. the definition? What does, what's the term mean? 
after you go to the It's a... Uh, oh my goodness, I really hope I remember this correctly. It's uh, where the melody line runs over the accompanying phrases at different patterns. So you might have... Um, Let's just say two melodies, and they every time they occur, they occur together at the same time. Mm-hmm. Or you could have them so that they are think of like tectonic plates shifting over each other. Sure, time. yeah. So um, one ends at a, a different point at the other on the other one, mm-hmm. and then they overlap in different ways. Yep. Yeah. I think yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, <laughs> I mean it's, it strikes me that you're a band that are always wanting to kind of evolve and try new things and you see like looking at theory and seeing well, how that can develop and all that is that mm. something for you? oh yeah I mean we're always doing something mad uh, the next album is going to be very different from the first because we want to try something different yeah. Um, and yeah it just keeps things interesting you know we've got so many different projects going on I think ambition comes into a lot as well you know we're a very ambitious band we want we want to do well and sure. if we just keep doing the same thing over and over that we won't get there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're, we try to do as many different things as possible. Did you have a fairly clear idea of how you were going to sound? <laughs> no, no. No, not, not at all. Really. No, I mean, when Lily and I first started writing little pieces of music, we're, we're sort of limited by our technology. We only had a small Korg synth mm-hmm. and no real way of recording it. And uh, the vocals were done uh, in my living room with uh, like stretching my wife's tights over the microphone as a really primitive pop guard and we just did what we could. You know, we didn't have any idea we didn't set out to make music in a particular way because we, we couldn't. Yeah. You sure. know, I I couldn't set out to do what we did because I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So I think it kind of progressed naturally. I think maybe now we have a bit more of an idea. So like when I when we're putting the second album together we'd we looked at it and thought, oh we kinda of do with some more like uh, some heavier stuff or some darker stuff uh, so we'll sort of uh, we'll maybe write things with that in mind but for the most part it had really just evolved naturally yeah I think there are I think there are a couple of things that were always going to be inevitably in there um, lyric wise I think I was always going to write about kind of uh, the future and uh, future technologies and speculative fiction and things mm-hmm. like that um, just because that's what I like writing about, so mm-hmm. I think that's just always going to be there. Um, and also, uh, I can't really sing in any other way. Um, I'm not trained in any way. I'm going to get some singing lessons, but my voice is quite restricted in what I can do. I can't like belt out um, like Adele or anything like that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, the that tone of the vocals yeah. um, it wouldn't suit, though, would it? If you could belt out like Adele to make a majority suit. No. It would just me make our music different sounding. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got that restriction mm-hmm. uh, of the biological instrument. Oh, it's like that line in Walk the Line where they said um, we'd play faster if we could. Mm. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, I would write different music if I could play it, but <laughs> I can't. So um, I, I like we've done. Sorry. I was going to say some. There are some other things that you've taken into account for the next album as well, where you're going to make the production a bit cleaner and have a few yeah. more. Oh, sorry, a few less synth tracks. Um, yeah. For anyone that doesn't know, in our first album, there are some of the synths, uh, there are like 40 synths playing at the same time or something like that. In hindsight, perhaps overkill. It's <laughs> like uh, Home Sweet Home, which you just heard. Yeah, yeah actually. That's well, got a lot of synths in it. Yeah, I think at the end, there's, I think, six different melodies all playing at once. Right. And it works great for that, but I think for the second album, it's going to be a slightly not stripped back like by any manner of means but I think they'll uh, different, yeah. yeah it'll be a bit different there'll be a little bit less going on because we're kind of experimenting with um, putting the songs first almost instead of the sounds uh, we're releasing some songs in June that we wrote in France uh, and it's just bass vocals a very minimal beat and uh, electric piano because we wanted to see if we could do it you know we wanted to prove to ourselves that we could you know, write really strong, catchy, interesting songs without the kind of support net of 40 layers of synth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's worked really well, I yeah. think. Yeah, good songs. Yeah, I'm looking forward to releasing them. Well, what I also think you seem to have is a really strong sense of um, the kind of look of the band. I don't just mean how you, how you look, but like the design, uh, kind of press shots, even like down to the fonts that you use. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that you think very carefully about that kind of thing. Yeah, it, 
I, I'm a big fan of graphic design, I think it's really important. Uh, there's nothing worse than when you see a gig poster that's poorly designed or it just looks amateurish because the way you present yourself reflects on uh, how people think mm -hmm. of you. Uh, we did quite a good job when we first started, I think, of looking like a much bigger and more established band than we actually were. Uh, we just talked a good game. It's all PR, you know, <laughs> um, which is my day job. Yeah. Um, so I, I just really like choosing fonts. <laughs> just really, really into fonts. Um. I think also because um, for most humans are very visual. It's like our mm. major uh, priority sense that we turn to first. So I think um, the visuals of something will affect how you hear the music as well. Yeah. Um, it can set up, set up a ma uh, an atmosphere and an expectation, which can then change kind of the context of the music in your head and what um, sequences or sounds you pick out when you're listening to it. So getting the visuals right is almost like kind of warming up someone's brain to mm -hmm. interpret your music in the right way. Yeah, because yeah, it can cause some like weird cognitive dissonance when you see, uh, if you've never heard a band before and you look at their artwork and you expect one thing then it turns out to be wildly different. It's not a, it's not always a bad thing, but it does. It can be a little bit jarring. Mm. Uh, I've noticed that there seems to be a bit of a trend now for metal bands to have. It used to be all like weird scratchy fonts and like mm. symmetries and all that sort of bleak stuff, but they've gone the opposite direction now, and it's a lot of the uh, metal albums I see now are just white covers or really predominantly light and airy, and I think it's a deliberate move to give you a different impression of the music when you start listening. Um, I suppose they're just black, like yeah. Spinal Tap. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a, a Great Sun album called uh, Monoliths and Dimensions, mm -hmm. and it's just a massive black circle. And I think that is exactly what that music sounds like. Just dense, no like, hole. yeah, no yeah, light escapes. Yeah, fall into yeah. the difficulty getting out of. Exactly. Uh, it's brilliant, such a good album, actually. But it's interesting, I think, what you say, because when you, you said you sent me um, really early star mm -hmm. and uh, as far as I know you already had your website set up there yeah, thank you and and then um, seeing you live and all that and it did feel like this was a band that had been working for years together <laughs> you know to me because yeah. the, the, the look was down the look matched the sound mm -hmm. then the live show matched the sound and the look and all of that yeah. thing it seemed like it had been really well, through you can yeah. condensed it into a short space of time yeah I mean from <coughs> I think they were basically three-ish months between us getting together and writing some stuff, releasing it, and then us actually being a band. We didn't, we haven't been agonising over this for a long time. We're not the sort of band that um, would take years to define their sound before doing it. We're very much a, a work in progress. Mm. And if anybody who's been following us from the beginning, like you have, will... We're a little bit rough and ready sometimes, you know, we are evolving as we go along, we're making it up as we go along, and I would always rather do that. I think it keeps things interesting for us as a band, mm -hmm. because we, I can't imagine spending years and years and years focusing on something so much and then presenting it to the world. I would rather show people our progress warts and all, because yeah. we've released some stuff that when I look back on, maybe it's not perfect you know maybe it's not ideal but i would rather listen to that flawed artifact than something that was so polished and so perfect like where do you go from there you know i think it would, it would really restrict us creatively if we planned too far yeah. in advance so i want to think that maybe people that have heard us from the beginning are then kind of like taken on a journey with our space you know <laughs> like yeah. um see things develop and like how from starting and maybe still now actually some of our performances are a bit rough um, but <laughs> yeah, we're I, I speak for myself here. Like, oh, no, no, no. Um, I, I still. The last one was polished. Oh, that's one wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know that uh, I I can work on my singing technique a lot. Um, and I'm totally aware of that, but I don't want to let it stop me making music and mm -hmm. stop me performing. And I do get the fear sometimes that we're gonna blow it kind of by performing live and then not being as good as we could be and then people will think that's how we're gonna be forever rather than thinking like we're on a journey and this is one, mm -hmm. one part of it. It's not possible to be brilliant all the time. No. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's unreal. No, and what you get then is the same gig time after time. And what I would say is there's almost a kind of um, a punk or indie feel about um, we are we're learning as we go. Yeah. You know, uh, um, I mean, you mentioned I think before we started recording that uh, 
or no, when you were recording that you you had to play the gig in King Tut's mm-hmm. and then we have to get a band together here. <laughs> and yeah. it was similarly the uh, Teenage Superstars film I was telling you about yeah. beforehand. They were talking to the Soup Dragons and they got the chance to play in Glasgow and they went, we've never played live before. Well, we're going to have to do something about that because yeah. it's next week. So that yeah. whole idea that, you know, we're not yeah. going to let this stop us. We're going to grab the chance and go and do it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and mm-hmm. learn as we go. Yeah, I, I would always rather go see a band that made mistakes but were interesting than go and see a band that were technically incredibly proficient but bland. Mm. Yeah, I would, yeah, I mean, if you go and see, worry, yeah, yeah, if you go and see an L Space show, it's pretty much 50 50. Like, I was gonna go, it's it, awesome. it, 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 always good. I think, yeah, I think we're always <laughs> like, I, I think we're always quite good, but there are some times when we just play things a bit differently, we do things differently, it sounds weird, but I would always rather do yeah, that definitely. as a performer and as a, a, a what a watcher an audience member I would always rather see a band make mistakes and grow than like you said just see the same gig over and over and over because in any kind of live performance that's mm-hmm. often where the real kind of memorable stuff happens yeah. it's you know uh, yeah, yeah, when something goes a bit wrong or something or you do something new for the first time yeah. then that's when you make a connection as you see mm-hmm. with the audience because they thought I was there when you know, exactly. that happened I mean, our, our very first gig uh, we were panicked, we didn't have enough songs, we didn't really know what we were doing. Uh, first note, first song, Dixon's bass strap broke mm-hmm. and he had to spend the rest of the, the song kind of crouching down and I, I didn't notice because I was too busy, like, sweat pouring into my eyes, crying <laughs> to myself, thinking, why am I doing this to myself, this is the worst thing I've ever done. Turned out it was Shave your eyebrows or something, <laughs> yeah. so that's what they're for, to stop the sweat going in your eyes. <laughs> they could only do so much. Uh, so, um, yeah, but that, as a band, that I realised that at that point, things are never going to be perfect. I think if we'd gone and played our first gig and it had been absolutely spot on, it would have raised this impossible bar that yeah. we could never really hit again. So I, I would always rather that we made mistakes. I think the main thing as well with that gig you're talking about is like, that song we decided to do the day before, mm-hmm. or even that day maybe. Yeah, we hadn't played it together. Either, so we hadn't really played it together much. I was like, oh, come on, we'll open with it. All right, okay. So I was kind of freaking out about this. Started the song with the right note, and then the, my guitar strap fell, fell apart. So I'm on my knees playing this bass line. Yeah. <laughs> the folks think that's just your yeah. style. Yeah. <laughs> the kneeling bassist. Yeah. And it, it was, even though it wasn't a perfect set, that that opening track will, will always sort of stick with me because mm-hmm. it, that's when it was like, all right, there is there is a, a real energy here, yeah. and it, it is connecting with the audience. But what you're saying about like gigs being perfect, I remember somebody, I hope Bruce Springsteen's not going to be listening to this, but I remember somebody saying, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan, mm-hmm. and they went to see him live, and they said it was terrible. I was really, I was surprised to hear that. And they said, well, it's, it was technically brilliant. But I might as well have just stayed at home and put the record yeah, on. Yeah, I think because it just sounded the exact it was too polished. There was yeah. no connection with the audience, there was no rawness about yeah. it. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. It's like it cost me 90 quid. Massive bands. So if you go to see uh, Muse, I mean, I'm a big Muse fan, mm-hmm. I absolutely love them, but it's like Dixon said, you might as well stay home and listen to the CD. That's why I think bands get to the point where they put on amazing stage shows because they're, they're, there's no unpredictability to the music. Uh, I saw them at the Barrow. Yeah, I saw them at the Barrows uh, a couple of years ago. They just did a tiny, tiny tour and they were absolutely incredible because they were playing some new songs, clearly didn't know how to play them. You know, it was all very yeah. rough and there was no fanciness to it. It was brilliant. I saw them at the Hydro a couple of months later and it was a brilliant show. Absolutely yeah. loved it. But it was a note for note, yeah. absolutely immaculate. And it was quite, it, it was a bit boring. You know, if you took all the visuals away, sure. It is quite dull. Um, it was just like the CD on loud. Exactly, right. yeah, and you're with 15,000 other sweaty people, so mm-hmm. it's not a great experience. <laughs> Whereas I'd, I'd rather go see a band without all the fancy stage stuff and just rattle through some songs that they don't know how to play. You know? yeah. <laughs> I, I have come to, I, I now mainly go to small gigs for partly for that reason, also because 90 quid and 100 quid. Right. Right. But um, yeah. I, because one, it's just a better place to be, you know, yeah, when you can kind of see the whites of their eyes rather than watching something on a screen or something like that. Yeah, I find that when I go to big gigs like that, I do, I watch the screens mm-hmm. because it's the only way you can actually see what's going on. Yeah, you know, it's a bit. I saw um, uh, Bell and Sebastian at the Hydro. I was distinctly underwhelmed. I'm a, I, I like Bell and Sebastian, but it was a really soulless gig and uh, it was a bit 
disappointing. Mm. Whereas if I, I'm sure if I saw them in a smaller place, it would yeah, be it's such a big venue to try and. It's not a place for twee yeah. jangly pop. You know, you can't fill an arena. Strange booking, yeah. yeah. I think this is quite um, a good discussion for people in other bands to hear as well. Um, and I'd like to say, <laughs> if I'm ever in your audience and you feel like you've done a bad gig, you've made some mistakes, I'm not focusing on those things. I'm mm. seeing. I actually prefer to watch a gig where these people in front of me are humans. Mm. Um, mm getting into their music and making something in front of me and I really I don't I don't care about the mistakes no. I, don't, no. I won't even remember them mm. so don't worry everyone it's okay <laughs> but it is a connection with the audience because genuinely I find the audience are on the side of a band that are oh, on stage yeah. you know and so, are, 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 are willing mm. uh, everyone to have a good time because yeah. that's why you're all out doing these things exactly. and a band makes a, makes a big mistake very often the audience will go and, and applaud and it's, it's yeah. because they're like oh they're just human beings like us yeah. <laughs> and, and we'll start again and let's, let's do it mistakes. again because they're not yeah. super humans yeah um, so you, most of your, I think oh, everything you've done has come out in last night from Glasgow, is that right? Uh, the first EP uh, wasn't actually, yeah. we did Soul Zero, we just released that ourselves, then a wee uh, collection of instrumentals we did ourselves, uh, but then after that everything's been LNFG. And how did that come about? Uh, I was emailing a lot of record labels, just, and, uh, yeah, just pitching our mm-hmm. music places, and uh, Ian actually wrote back really, really, really early way early um, just after the first EP and the thing is I, I had no experience of this so when he replied I didn't realise that that was actually a, an indication of interest <laughs> um, and he invited us to the LNFG birthday party uh, which we couldn't make I think I was in France Lily was busy Dixon was busy so it just kind of fell away so mm-hmm. waited another couple of months uh, we recorded some more songs and I did another round of pitching Ian got back to us uh, Dixon and I met for coffee in Edinburgh and I uh, came out of it feeling really happy. We had no idea what it would actually entail. We didn't know if we were going to be a signed band at the end of the day. Then we got a message from him on Facebook saying, uh, yeah, the members voted for you. It's all good. We'll release your album. That was a oh, good day. Yeah, all yeah. good. That's nice. Um, I remember my in-laws were listening at that point. They did not understand what was going on. Because I was delighted. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, we're going to release an album. Yeah. So? What do you mean so? <laughs> you know, just, oh, I'm pretty excited. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically that was excited for me. Yeah, so that so the first EP came out in January twenty seventeen, got signed in August twenty seventeen, and then from there, it was a year till the album, and now we're here. And uh, and the album is a couple Arcadia, and you mentioned that the themes are slightly down to kind of what you're influenced by, and all mm. those things. I mean, expand on those themes because there is a lot of kind of utopian, dystopian, sci-fi. Um, I mean, I, Kipples. Philip K. Dick, isn't it? I think. Yeah. yeah. I was in a big Philip K. Dick phase. Yeah. Blue Flowers is also based on um, Ascana Darkly, the book. Ah, right, okay. Um, so I really liked the concept of Kipple. Um, and for anyone that doesn't know, it's um, it's the kind of like dust and rubbish that builds up in a, like a consumerist society when you're not looking. So you know how sometimes your, your house just gets messy without you really noticing? It just builds up over time. Kipple kind of does that as well, but the context of it is in a, a kind of dying civilization where a lot of people have left and the kind of the, the ash and the dust is settling. And yeah, I like this idea of it's kind of it's like a, the consumerist entropy of the universe is always going to go towards everything turning into Kipple eventually. Mm. Um, and no one's really noticing until half of it's Kipple. Um, and then the word Arcadia is um, means utopia. It's actually got connotations of more pastoral utopia, so more mm-hmm. like nature and wilderness, whereas we brought that into more of a city idea. Mm-hmm. So the whole Kipple Arcadia thing, in my mind anyway, is like a futuristic utopian city with elements of dystopia, with the Kipple appearing behind your back. Mm. Um, but also rebuilding a better society with the Kipple, I've said Kipple so many times. It's such <laughs> a great word. Yeah. Um, so, uh, without using that word, what I mean is rebuilding society out of the rubbish. out of yeah. the rubbish left over from the people that tried to do it before. Mm-hmm. Um, using what you've got. Mm-hmm. So there's a line in the Cafe Electric: "Is um, from the dust will build, remodel cathedral spires with plastic bottles." Yeah. I think that sums up the whole album. Basically, is rebuilding 
what we had we're doing it a little bit better using the crap that's left yeah and um, often you see things in the news now as well about people actually making houses out of plastic bottles yeah. out of just rubbish totally. and that's amazing I think that's the kind of thing what we're going to have to start doing anyway yeah. um, like develop a circular economy or something and reuse things or just stop using plastic yeah yeah, I, yeah we the, I think the album could easily have uh, degenerated into a, um, a very bleak vision of the world so we we always try to put a positive spin on things. Yeah. Uh, back when we started this, it was just after 2016, so Trump was elected, Brexit was going on, still as obviously, and then it was. It felt like everything was just so dark and so bleak, and we wanted to try and do something that was a little bit lighter, a little bit more beautiful, um, and that's how the album kind of came about. It was never, It didn't really guide what we wrote, but it was an overarching uh, feeling yeah. that we wanted to try and get across. Yeah. Yeah, that we can make a better place, but it will take action. It's not just going to happen by itself. Yeah. And some of that action will maybe be in the dystopia in the meantime, or in itself seems quite dystopic, um, but it's on the road to a utopia. Mm. Um, I'm interested, uh, I've been talking to some writers recently who uh, have written particularly short stories similarly, and they said the problem is that events kind of move so fast now, and ideas move very fast, that a lot of the things that they've written about are kind of being overtaken, and you were saying about, you know, using waste to create something new, and that, you know, does happen already, and then you've got a song like Back Up Baby, where, you know, this idea that you can actually... Um, have uh, another child created in case you know things go wrong. Mm. I mean, that's not too far away from what's happened. But have you found that in your writing that you mm. think, well, this isn't too far away from now what's happening? It's just black metal, really. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah, I thought about that. that yeah. was a, a term used to describe our music actually once. Was it? And yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that black metal—the sound of black metal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would be alright if we go on with Charlie Booker. Then. I remember something. Sorry, I didn't interrupt you. Mm-hmm. I remember somebody described Black Mirror as what if phones but too much. I think that sums us up. It's like what if something's standard but just a bit too much of it. Um, <laughs> um, in answer to your question, I guess yes. Uh, with Backup Baby, a few months after writing it, there was that news about uh, China, a Chinese scientist mm-hmm. um, developing HIV resistant babies through cloning um, and editing genes. Mm-hmm. and um, I think that's kind of what I mean by getting to utopia through dystopic means as mm. well because there's a lot of ethical problems perhaps with the way that he went about it uh, yeah. uh, but if uh, I'm, not saying, I'm not necessarily saying it, that particular uh, way of doing it was the best way to get to, to the goal because mm. there might be a better way but uh, looking forward to a future where people can be HIV, resist, HIV mm-hmm. resistant would save so many lives. So it's like uh, aiming for a utopia and trying to avoid the dystopic bits yeah, as we get yeah. there, but sometimes it doesn't happen. Um, again, I think the themes seem to, to match the music really well. Um, and was, were the themes kind of influential in how the music sounded? I mean, was it going to, you know, you've got a kind of, for want of a better term, it's a terrible term, but a futuristic sound, if you like. But certainly you've got this, um, and we'll talk about what you're doing next in a second, but to me it often sounds like the soundtrack to something, you know, a soundtrack to something visual and, you know, futuristic or science fiction or whatever. And I'm wondering whether the themes that you were writing about can fed into the music as well. I think they probably did. It might have been subconscious. Uh, I think our first EP was a... very different in the way it sounds, it's a bit more organic sounding. I think as we just got some more toys to play with, some more technology, it kind of evolved slightly. Um, I don't think we've ever set out specifically to sound futuristic. I think it just happens that... Yeah, There's the tools we had and yeah, sounds we liked. Exactly. You know, mm. I'm sure if, uh, I don't know, if one of us could play violin or something, I'm sure we would sound very different if we had that at our disposal. But we don't. We yeah. have synths, so that's how it comes out. Um, I think there's maybe a couple of bits and pieces, like uh, on Cafe Electric again, there's a very futuristic sort of synths in there, and I think that was that was quite deliberate, because we wanted mm. it to be, that was like the centrepiece of the album, we wanted it to be this massive sounding, almost like a soundtrack to a city, so you felt like you were inside it. So I think that was probably quite deliberate, but there's others where it's just 
you know, scrolling through the sense go, oh, that's a nice scent. Mm. That? And, you know, there's not really much more consideration other than that sounds nice. I think maybe also because um, the lyrics are kind of some, in some ways, a story, but also like just like an idea spread out into mm. into words. Um, some of the songs end up being more soundtracky, like with movements rather than yeah. a strict like first chorus, first chorus type structure. That's actually never intentional. I never start writing um, like a vocal for a song or like the synth part or a bass or anything, mm. thinking that we don't want to. Re- chorus in that we probably need a few more of those really and we're going to try and do yeah, more of that but we don't we never intend for it to be structureless but i think maybe the way that the theme kind of unfolds means it becomes more like parts of a soundtrack with themes coming in and out rather yeah. than the structure yeah i mean on the on kevlar arcadia there's actually very few choruses like backup baby sun eaters and space junk are the only songs that actually have it to annihilation is that the chorus yeah. oh so it does yeah so it, yeah yeah we never really we never set out to do that, but I don't think it's it's not deliberate. It really is just uh, it's just the way it happens naturally. Um, we are going to try and have a couple more choruses, a couple of sing-song bits, you know, uh, lighters in the air, that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> although I say that now, I know it's going to turn out this like bleak dystopian nightmare <laughs> regardless. <laughs> anyway. About half of our songs we've written for the second album have choruses. Yeah, that's a good ratio. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some odd stuff in there. It's going to be good. So tell us a bit about what's happening next in terms of your music. I've got quite a lot going on. Um, so the second album's coming out in April 2020, um, last night from Glasgow. Uh, we're, uh, we're working on that now. It, that's got a, a fairly clear theme and an idea. Um, I won't go into too much, but it's basically sure. like... Late, I was thinking to see if you're going to reveal yeah, it. It's basically <laughs> no. uh, it's sort of late-stage capitalism. Okay. You know, it's going to be centred on that. Uh, before that, though, we are releasing a score uh, that we wrote. Uh, it's called Music Megastructures. It's the sounds of an imaginary city. Because we, we've always wanted to score a film or a soundtrack or something. Yeah. Or a video game or whatever. Uh, those are difficult gigs to get, so I thought, why not just do it ourselves? And I thought, lots of people have written scores for films, but um, one of my favourite pieces of music is uh, Rhapsody in Blue by Gershwin. Mm-hmm. And uh, that sounds like New York at the time. I wanted to do something similar, but for an imaginary city. Uh, so that's coming out uh, next month. Brilliant. Um, so it's like a full album length of cinematic, strange, instrumental songs. And uh, at the end of this podcast, hopefully you'll hear some of those songs. Yes, you will indeed. Uh, they've all got very long and obnoxious names. Which I'm quite pleased with. Excellent. Uh, so that'll be entertaining. So, uh, and in the meantime, I mean, you've got quite a few gigs coming up, I think. Uh, One or two, yeah. One or two. Yeah. Uh, so we're playing Glad Cafe again. Yeah. Yeah, we're playing at the Glad Cafe for an event called Play It Like a Woman, which is um, accompanying a release of a compilation uh, on vinyl, actually, um, mm-hmm. with lots of female artists, and it's raising money for uh, Glasgow Rape Crisis as well. Mm-hmm. So that's our next one. Uh, it's going to be great, and I'm really excited to see the other bands it's as well. Yeah, it's on that yeah, record, yeah. Uh, then after that we're playing uh, Paisley for the Scottish Alternative Music oh, yes. Awards Takeover. Uh, we've never played Paisley before so that's going to be really fun. And then playing the Sneaky Feats in Edinburgh in April to support Ayer Lou, who we played our second ever gig with way back in 2017. Lovely people, mm-hmm. great, great band. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure by the time this is released we'll be able to say that we're playing Kelburn Garden Party as well. So that is that July, is it? Y- yeah. Yes, I believe so, so that'll be really fun. Um, and between all that, we'll be recording the album and playing the odd gig here and there. But we're making a concerted effort to play less. Um, okay. Um, we want it to be more Make of an event. want us more. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Treating me. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah, we've got some... Oh, and in June, we're releasing a double A-side single of the songs I mentioned earlier that we wrote in France. Okay, uh, excellent. They're very, very, very different. Um, very, uh, very stripped back. So it'll be interesting to, to see how they're received. Great. I love them. I'm really into those songs. Yeah, they're really good. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see what James does for them. Yeah. Uh, James is a... James Sanger invites us over to France. He has produced and uh, written for Keen, Dido, U2, Manic Street Preachers, Annie Lennox. You know, he discovered us uh, last year. We went over to visit in France. 
Wow. Um, it was a really, it was a great week. Uh, basically, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, basically, um, uh, I babysat his kids while uh, <laughs> <laughs> the guys wrote music. Uh, it was really, it was really <laughs> fun. That's maybe not exactly true. Yeah, it, it was just. <laughs> That's your main memory of yeah, the You cooked for his kids. Yeah, yeah. they're the loveliest family. for them. Yeah, they're so, so lovely. We had a really good yeah. time and we, we'd never sat in a room together and written songs, so this was. That's really, really interesting. So it's yeah. a different way of doing it. Yeah. Really yeah. I, I think it shows in a way that the songs, they're still distinctly L space, but they are so, so sparse in comparison to what we usually do. And they've got a chorus. Well, one of them's got a chorus. Well, have they? <laughs> nah, not really. <laughs> they've, kind of, they've almost got a chorus, like yeah. a total chorus. But a wee bit um, more commercial, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because um, yeah, we kind of wrote it with... Um, unresolved so. choruses oh, to go exactly, with your unresolved yeah. chorus. Uh, it, was, it was very useful having... Um, an experienced person there who's not afraid to give criticism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's diplomatic. <laughs> it was good because usually you just write. Yeah. Yeah. No, he did it in a good way. It was yeah. never yeah. like horrible or anything. No. It was all valuable um, because he he knows what he's talking about. Uh, but we'd never had that before. When mm. we were writing, it's just by ourselves, and sure. there's no like kind of guiding eye. Um, but he would point out things that were good and that were bad, or things that needed to be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he helped us see our strengths and weaknesses in yeah, a way that we didn't know before. So the areas we need to work on and the areas that we should not lose mm-hmm. and we should keep as something we can see as good inside ourselves. Oh, wow. wow. Good inside was, ourselves. Yeah, good grief. It's all very Disney there. <laughs> it's like the talent was in you all along. Yeah. Uh, but that, that was good. Yeah. Also, he, he's got a very, very commercial eye. You know, everything he produces and writes is for, like, pop hits. You know, that's, right. that is his goal. So we've never written anything with that in mind. So I'm not saying that these are going to be massive pop hits. They're still weird, but um, I, it it was definitely weird. Exciting. Weird can be pop hits though. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, lots yeah. of examples of um, that. Did so, say that one of the songs you know could be and they did use these words. They did mm-hmm. say that this, this could be quite a quite a big hit. Yeah. So, but you know I don't think you would have just said that flippantly. It doesn't sound like the kind of person well, to say that. No. We'll see no. what happens. You know yeah. the reason they in contact with us is because to sort of collaborate and. We look for sync opportunities because mm-hmm. um, that's the way things are going. Mm-hmm. Record sales are, are not big, or yeah. certainly not as big as they were in the 90s when people were buying the Keen album yeah. by yeah. the bucket load. Exactly. So things have changed for him, and so he's, he's contacted various different artists to, to do a bit of collaboration with and yeah. see where things might go. So fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah, he found us from uh, our song Old Machines, which is very, again, that was very unusual for us, so it was nice to. It's just a B-side, you know, it was never, mm-hmm. I didn't think anything was going to come of it, but um, yeah, it's nice that it, it had a purpose. So those songs would be interesting. And so they come out in? June. In June. Hopefully yeah. June. Hopefully June. Yeah, we're, we're aiming for June, um, but we'll see. And in the meantime, I'm also uh, building some music software uh, with machine learning to generate new music based on inputting other music. Yeah. So a little bit of algorithmic composition as well. I don't know what I'm going to do with that yet. It's for a degree, but I intend to do more in that area as well and bring that side to L-Space. So, I mean, it does, before we round up, it sounds like L-Space, um, this isn't a, a band as such, you know, you're going to explore all sorts of different ways of making music and kind of getting music out there. As you say, it's not the old model of, you know, release an album, tour it for ages and it's kind of dead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or at least dying. Um, so, yeah, you're going to do that. Yeah, I think we're, we're definitely going to explore every possible avenue and do lots of different things um i i love recording and i love writing music and i i would like to focus on that and release more music uh as opposed to playing lots of gigs you know i think we've changed our tact very mm. slightly but um yeah i mean when you write as much music as we do you have to do something with it you, know, like <laughs> a, you either stick it on some bizarre score for an imaginary city or it sits on your hard drive so i'd rather it got out there into the world well very glad it is getting out there <laughs> enjoy it very much listen thanks very much guys for coming along today it's been um, a pleasure thank you thank you for having us cheers and uh, we'll be back soon with someone completely different cheers